So now we're back on track to Ephesians, and we are really still an introduction, though. I tried to get away from that, but I couldn't. So we're going to do an introduction again this week, part two, and I trust that the things that we're saying and the foundation that we're trying to lay for the book of Ephesians will really help us appreciate and understand this book. Uh, It's a book like no other book. You know, when you look at the gospel of, say, Matthew, which is the the gateway into the New Testament, and it's our connection with the Old Testament. You look at the book of Revelation, it's the story of God's consummation of all things. And, you know, these are such magnificent things. And we love the book of Hebrews. It's such an outstanding book in the Scriptures. But when you come to the book of Ephesians, you think you could preach for this for your entire preaching career and never probe the depths of, of Ephesians. Um, it just is mind-boggling to me. And the more you study it and the more you read it, uh, the more you appreciate it and the more you appreciate it, the more that God will give you from this book. <clears throat> By way of... Um, trying to lay some foundation, and I'm not sure exactly how to do this, and I I probably should have printed this off for you. It might have been more helpful, and I will next week, actually. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the literary structure of this book. It it is difficult if you want to try to outline it in ordinary fashion. Just uh, there's so many ways to do it and so many different outlines and it almost defies anyone to do it. But one of the key elements in, I think, in outlining it that I've come across and that I appreciate more than any other um, is um, what's called chiasm. And Bullinger, E.W. Bullinger was, I think, maybe one of those who I don't know if he was the one, well, he wasn't the one who originated it, but um, one who gave it prominence. Now, you know, this is a a typical letter in many ways, in many ways, because in Paul's letters, you know, typically he has a salutation at the beginning, he has a benediction at the end, and in the middle, he typically has a doctrinal portion that he's presenting, and then some practical advice, how to carry out or live out what he has just been teaching through whatever church he was writing to or group of people or individual or whoever. So here in this book, Paul's doing, in a sense, no different. He is presenting Uh, doctrine in the first three chapters, and then he's presenting the practice of that doctrine in the last three chapters. In the first three chapters, he's giving our standing in Christ. The last three chapters give us our state, what our condition is, how we appear in our walk and in relationship to that doctrine that he's just laid out for us. And so, 
But uh, as a matter of further clarification, one of the ways that Old Testament or Old, well, Old Testament and New Testament writers, writers of old, whether it was uh, in the scriptures or whether it was in secular writings, was to present their material in the form of this chiasmus or a chiasm. A chiasm gets its name from the Greek word chi, and a chi is the Greek letter X. So if you just picture that in your mind, a big old X, and then you chop off the right-hand side of the X. So you have a, like an arrow pointing like this. And then you have what they call ABBA. Now, there's a rock group by that name, but we don't want anything to do with them. I guess I don't. I don't know anything about them, so maybe I shouldn't say that. I don't know anything about them. But uh, it's ABBA is the, the method or the, the, the outline that writers followed in putting together their material. One of the reasons, as we mentioned last week, some people believe that the book of Ephesus was more like a treatise, not so much just a letter that Paul said, ah, there's some stuff going on over there in Ephesus. I think I'll sit down and write him a letter and cheer him up or whatever. But it was a, a more of a thought-out, well-prepared uh, document, as it were, that he had uh, put together. And, of course, anything that's in a, in a chiastic treatment, you would immediately look at it if you look at an outline and say, yeah, that took some thought to put that together. Because what you have then in this, this half of this X here, it starts over here with A, and then you have sub A down here. And these two thoughts correspond to each other. And then as you come down the X, then you come to B, and you have a thought given here, and then you come down to the sub B, and those two thoughts correspond with each other. And then you can go on and on from there. It can go A, B, C, D, and E, and F, and G, and, and however long or lengthy or complicated the outline may be. Now, I'm going to, I'll give you something next week. I'll, I'll put it in your hands so that you can get a good uh, and better visual on it of what I'm talking about. Um, sometimes what they'll do is they'll put a, a, a capital A and then an A with a little one on it down, down below, and that lets you know that these complement each other. Um, I think it was Bullinger who called this introverted correspondence rather than using the word chiasm introverted correspondence. So in other words, when he was corresponding, a writer, they would simply write something of a particular nature up here, and then later on, they would come down here and refer back to it as a way of um, making application of it or reinforcing the teaching of it. And it seems quite clear that that's what Paul did here in this letter when he was writing to the church 
at Ephesus. Now, going from there, <clears throat> what I want to do today, and, and we're trying to keep the time limited, knowing that we've got this uh, a meal following our service this morning. Oh, another thought I had, too, that I wanted to bring. So many things I wanted to bring out. We were mentioning about the temple in, in Ephesus, the temple that was dedicated to Artemis or Diana. And you remember back in Acts chapter 20, how Paul, uh, Acts chapter 19 and 20, actually, how Paul, when he was in Ephesus and the crowd there wanted to, um, uh, well, you remember they were shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. It says for the space of about two hours. And I was making reference to the size of the temple and its prominence in the city and, uh, and that, of course, that it was a pagan temple and so on. But one of the things that we uh, are going to mention here this morning is this matter of the heavenlies. In, in this letter to Ephesus, if that's indeed truly what it was, and, and if it wasn't a circular letter or an encyclical letter, Paul mentions this, this word, heavenlies, uh, some five times. And it's interesting, as you contemplate this temple and Diana, who is um, a goddess of, well, fertil- fertility for one, and land, and I think uh, fruit, and, and uh, uh, different things. But the word Diana means heavenly. And when you think about that, and who Paul is writing to, the connection that Paul is trying to make between Diana, the pagan worship in this city, and what are the true nature of the Christian's position is in Christ. And we'll look at more of that in just a moment. What I want to mention the rest of this service this morning is simply um, eight words that we need to focus on when we study this book. Eight key words, at least eight. There may be more of a, a mentioned in lesser times, but at least eight that I find that are really key. You know, another writer mentioned, uh, I think, five or seven or something like that, and, but I got eight. The first one I'm going to mention is the word love. You don't really hear much about uh, the, the letter of Ephesians dealing with the matter of love. And yet, this word is mentioned 14 times in this letter. That's more than the other words that I'm going to be mentioning this morning, the matter of love. And Paul mentions this love here, the love that has been given to us in Christ Jesus and it's to lead us, that's, that's the doctrinally, this love that God has given to us in Christ Jesus, which will then lead us to a life of love. It's a major theme. Another word that occurs in this letter that we're going to need to focus on is the word grace. Of course, grace is a prominent New Testament word, but it's prominent in this epistle as well. 
And it's mentioned some 13 times. And this word grace, it's interesting that being such a prominent word, if you turn back to Acts chapter 20, you find that when Paul was passing through Ephesus, in verse 24, Acts chapter 20, and verse 24, Paul was passing through Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem, and the only place in Scripture that the gospel is called the gospel of grace is right here, when he was at Ephesus. And he says, none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. This gospel that Paul went about preaching all through the Middle East, all through Southern Europe, he terms the gospel of grace. And grace is a foundational term for this letter. And so we need to understand that what God has given us in Christ is purely by his grace. A third word is the word spiritual or the word spirit. It's also mentioned 13 times. And by the way, grace and spiritual go together. And they're mentioned 13 times each. Spiritual defines for us the sphere of truth and the sphere of activity in which the believer resides. It's the sphere of truth that Paul is teaching us. It is spiritual truth. It's not from man. And he's describing for us the sphere of activity in which you and I as believers are to live and walk. And those two words go together. And then we come to that word, the heavenlies. Now this word occurs five times in the book of Ephesians, and it's the only place in the New Testament that this word occurs. In the heavenlies. Now, if you look at the first occurrence of it in our King James Bible, and you'll see that it says there in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings, there's the sphere of operation, in heavenly places in Christ. Now, you see that the word places in your Bible would be in italics. That means it's been supplied by the translators. And, I, and it's, again, one of those unfortunate things. Because the word heavenlies itself implies a place, and it's a noun. By making the word, or putting the word places in Scripture... That makes heavenlies an adjective, and it's not an adjective. So it's really much plainer and simpler if you just read it as spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. 
That's talking about the sphere. Where these things occur, where they take place. Uh, I'll read to you something that uh, Norman Harrison wrote concerning this matter about the Greek noun. He says, a plural noun in the Greek, um, the translators, in their zeal to make the meaning and wording complete, have inserted the word places, thus converting the noun into an adjective, heavenly places, and yet the heavenlies comprehend more than places in the lofty thought and language of this epistle. All right, then the fifth word, the word mystery. The word mystery occurs five times, and it is a complement to the word heavenlies because when you think about the word mystery and you know the, the New Testament definition of the word mystery has to do with a secret, a secret that God was holding back on, as it were, until just the right time to reveal it. And that's what he does in this letter. In this letter, he begins to reveal certain secrets, unknown things that God is now making known. And it has to do with these heavenlies. One of those things is, is that Christ is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenlies. But did you know that it also says, for those of us who are in Christ, it says we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, <laughs> with him. It's an amazing thing. Think about that. Christ is, of course, physically, literally there in the heavenlies, seated at the right hand of God, and there we are with him. That's our position in Christ. And then a sixth word that I think is, is really key to developing an understanding about this word love, and that is the word body. Paul here talks about the church, which is his body, Christ's body. He is the head, and we individually are members of his body. The word body occurs eight times. And I think that it's probably quite clear and, or maybe obvious then that if we are, and, and it's, it's some, I guess in a way, I don't know if I want to say humorous, um, if that's the right word, when you, when, when you picture in your mind Christ as the head and all these people down here being members of the body of Christ and the body has arms and legs and, you know, in, in Corinthians uh, in chapter 12, he talks about how the body is made up of all these different kinds of members and uh, some are seemly and some are unseemly, you know, some are more prominent than others. So you're thinking about arms and legs and ears and a mouth and all these different sorts of things. Well, you walk with legs and arms move. And so I, you try to think about members of the body of Christ in their activity, moving. And so when you, 
picture the body of Christ with Christ as the head and we as his members, from that then, we should be picturing the flowing out, the working out of that body, what it does, its activity. And of course, Paul does that, and we will get into that as we study in this book. But connected to that word body then is another prominent word. That's our word number seven, and that's our word walk. Um, not Jesse Penn Lewis. What's her name? Ruth. Ruth Paxson. Ken gave me a, a copy of a book that she wrote called the the walk the wealth the walk and the warfare. That's right, isn't it? The wealth, the walk, and the warfare of the Christian. And a part of that walk is our connection with the head. As a part of the body of Christ, we are connected to the head, but we are to be walking. There's an outflow of that walk, and we are related to him, so we do not walk in any way or fashion apart from the will and the pleasure of the head, which is Christ. If, in other words, you can think of it like this. If the body is what we are, and it is, then the walk is what we're to do. And so it behooves us then to be very careful about our Christian life as to what we do. Because what we do, it reflects upon what we are, members of his body. Then the last thing, the last word I want to mention, <clears throat> and this is probably the biggest word in all of the book of Ephesians, and it's the word in. The word in occurs some um, 90 plus times, 89 times in the Greek text, but it's more than that in the English text. And if you remember from our, from our study of Greek prepositions in our chart and our little block of cheese with the holes in it, you know, a piece of Swiss cheese, and the mouse is crawling around on the cheese and he's inside. He's inside the cheese. Or if you just remember the circle and in representing being in the circle. And we describe the circle as the sphere of activity or the position where you are. And this book, this letter that Paul wrote is full of this emphasis upon our position in Christ, where we are, and our sphere of activity, what we are to do. Now, it's, this is by no means unique to the book of Ephesians. Paul does this in other books as well. But in none does he do it as prominently as he does in this letter. And so, as we approach this letter... 
And as we think about the things that Paul has to teach us, and yes, they are deep. I mean, I I just, I go like this sometimes when I think about some of these things that Paul has to say here, and I just try to squeeze and get, I can't get it all. But all I can say with that is, as well, Peter did the same thing. He said, Paul wrote some things that are mighty hard to understand. And when we talk about heavenly things, and we are confined to earth and the earthy things, we can only grasp the heavenly as we can make a picture or relate it to the earthly. Hence, Paul's emphasis on the temple. And the temple, the holy place where God dwelt, and then making application of that to say, you're God's temple. You are where God dwells. You are God's holy place. But oh, what a mess we make of it sometimes. Sometimes to the point where just as it was in the Old Testament, God writes Ichabod across and this leaves. And that's a very sad state for a church to be in. And we certainly don't want to be there. That means our lives must conform. When Paul says, put off the things of the old man and put on the things of the new, he's telling us how to walk in that sphere, in the sphere of activity of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or if Carl Natrum was here, he'd say, in that sphere of a kingdom seeker and not just a kingdom believer. So contemplate these things. Contemplate what it has meant for the Lord Jesus Christ to come in the flesh as we celebrate his birth this month of December. And when Philippians tells us that he took upon himself, well, John tells us he took upon himself flesh, incarnate. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 says he took upon himself the form of a slave. This is no small thing that God did when he determined from ages past what he was going to do in implementing his purpose of the ages. And, he's, and you know, the marvelous thing is, is that in the birth of Jesus Christ, ultimately in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see God's confirmation of who this man Jesus was. And he's bringing it to pass.
And so we read these words and these letters that Paul wrote and Peter and John and the rest. We read them with confidence. We read them believing, knowing that they're true and they're going to happen just in the same manner that they wrote them. They're literally going to be. And that ought to be encouraging to us. That ought to lift our spirits. That ought to give us a a punch. (laughs) Say, boy, when I celebrate Christmas, boy, this really, this is something. This is a great thing. Forget about what the world does and the way they do it. Just let the moments capture your heart of what it meant that night when Christ was born. And as we join together in a meal of fellowship, let's do so in a way that proves meaningful to each one of us, that captures that spirit. And we can embrace all that the Apostle Paul and Jesus and John, and I don't put them in any particular order here. I'm just throwing names out there of all that they have given us in this book so that we might know and have confidence in the truth and what Christ has given us. Let's pray. Father, it is true that it's only in the name of Christ that we have these things. It is true that it's only in the name of Christ that we have any hope. Hope for a world that is spinning out of control. No one to rescue it. No one on the horizon to deliver these nations and bring peace and righteousness except our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how we thank you, Father, from the depths of our heart for bringing Jesus Christ to us and extending your grace to us so that we might know him and we might know the prospect of that peace that is yet to come. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.